welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we're going to be dissecting a fan favorite, The Shining. We're not going to do an introduction because hopefully everybody knows The Shining. It has so securely cemented itself into the cultural lexicon that I don't think that anyone could reach an age past five, six without hearing at least one of the references like, here's Johnny, or... All work and all and no play makes Jack a dull boy. I think that this movie is going to be forever one of those movies that is simply remembered. While a lot of other movies enter the lexicon and then leave, this one has lasted for over 30 years. Almost 40 years, right? Uh, 1980, so 41 years. It's insane that, that this movie has the following or has the success that it has, especially given the circumstances around the filming initially. First of all, you would think that Stephen King not liking it would have been like a death whale. I I can't imagine with the influence that Stephen King wields that him saying this sucked and I don't like the deviations from my book. So do we know why he doesn't like it? Is it because it deviates from the book? It's because of how, how significantly it deviates from the book, yes. Okay. So significantly, in fact, that he made his own own TV adaptation. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Uh, we kind of talked about it while we were watching, and you said that it's bad. Yeah, I don't like it. Is it I don't think is it's it good. like super bad, or is it like it, like it's one of those things where the quality is so significantly lower than this movie? Okay, so it's like kind of cheesy acting and like yeah, just like bare bones kind of set. That's something that this does so well because a lot is just felt. In this movie, like we're kind of like we're watching it and I've seen this like a handful of times. I, I love this movie, but there is this weird kind of dichotomy to all the main characters acting like Jack Nich- Nicholson. Brilliant actor, right? You cannot deny that. He's a really great actor, does a great job in this movie. But there's like just some lines and, and some some scripting moments where it's like super awkward and it's like this is not believable i'm taken out of the moment but at the same time it's like well this conversation happening on screen right now is just mundane enough to be realistic (laughs) so so it's kind of like it makes you think in those moments and i'm not sure if that was necessarily the intended vibe they were going for but it's unsettling in its own right you you're Spot on with the, like, mundanity. And one of the other things, too, is I I talked to you about, like, transcendentalism as it is represented in film by these moments that hang on particularly uninteresting things Mm -hmm. for way too long. But what that does is it first allows the audience to rest, be redrawn into it, and then have their expectations sort of pulled out from under them. And we we start to focus on things. You know, there's that long shot of Danny where he's just riding the big wheel through the halls, right? Mm -hmm. That shot is so incredibly boring. (laughs) I like it. You right. That's the thing though. It is so boring, but it is so powerful and potent because it's just it's this draw of realism Mm -hmm. and the sound of Danny's big wheel Mm -hmm. switching from carpet to wood floor. It's so palpable and believable that it draws you so deeply back into the action, even though nothing happens. It's it's almost like hypnotic in both sound yeah. and image. And 
I think that it's particularly effective in this case because it happens a few times throughout the film, right? And I believe it's the last time is when he runs into the twin girls and then he has the vision of like their chopped up bodies in the hallway, right? And so I think that's all kind of leading, like every scene with him driving his big wheel around the hallways kind of leads to that moment of like, you kind of hypnotized into this like, oh, here we go again. This is just like nice little moment to turn my brain off. And then that happens. And mm-hmm. the shock on Danny's face kind of in- interwoven with the the graphic uh, images of the, the girl's bodies is like really shocking to the audience as well, uh, especially when they're expecting to just kind of turn their brain off and, you know, enjoy the <laughs> the kind of like ASMR of Danny riding on the, the carpet and then the hardwood and then the carpet and the hardwood. Yeah, and it's in it. It's all about these repetitive gestures that, as the film progresses, start to break down. And it's not just repetitive gestures, but repetitive visuals. For example, the repeating pattern on the carpet. Mm-hmm. Like it is. It is so iconic but why there's there's no reason that it should be as memorable as it is but it's like something about the carpet you just get locked into and part of it is that humans are naturally drawn to patterns Mm -hmm. they've done studies with like music for example where they will repeat certain sections of music and then they will play a piece where the music slowly evolves over time and people are more likely to say that the repetitive pieces were more likely to be composed by humans. Mm -hmm. And so everything in this movie has this almost pattern-like basis, but also palindromic, which I think is really interesting. And you get the first sense of this greater palindrome with the topiary as the centerpiece, like the maze. The maze, yeah. So the maze is this large-scale palindrome, and it represents actually a significant theme of the movie. So it goes, family enters the home, they meet Scatman Crothers, they go to the kitchen area, right? And then it, it reaches this point, not where Wendy sees, but where Jack sees the woman in the room, mm-hmm. right? From then, it, in, it reverses. So the entire film goes backwards. So they go to the kitchen, and then they go to the topiary maze. And then they leave the hotel. Well, another thing that is in there, just for people who are not convinced on that, is when Jack goes to the bar. Right. That happens on both both sides of that. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. The first time he goes, he doesn't have any money in his wallet. And Lloyd at the at the bar says, you know, it's covered by the house. And he had said, Jack had said, I, that he would give his soul for one pint of beer Mm -hmm. which i think is where a lot of people get the hell imagery and that this idea that lloyd is the devil because when jack is at the bar the second time when he opens his wallet it's full of cash that he can pay lloyd with Mm -hmm. because he sold his soul well not that kind of brings up like the whole like what is the paranormal activity no no pun intended but what is the paranormal activity going on here we know it is tied to the hotel itself because dick or scatman crothers or whoever you want whatever you want to call him um he says that this place is kind of like a physical manifestation of what the shining is in the minds of people with that gift so my interpretation I'll say is that the hotel kind of like collects these these kind of like memories and and souls of people. Yeah. And that's why like you see Jack in the portrait at the end with all these other people that were at that party that he keeps like kind of traveling back in time to 
whenever he goes in the ballroom. So yeah, you know, it's taken. He's dead in real life, but like he's kind of taken by the hotel. And it's it's almost like for people who have seen Haunting at Hill House, you know, like the, the memories are the things that haunt the people. And like time is kind of a weird mechanic with how that works, because like sometimes you'll see things from the future, as Scatman Crothers explains to Danny is you know, sometimes you'll see things to come. Sometimes you'll see things in the past, but it's all kind of presented by the Overlook Hotel. I, I was just talking to Val last night about this and then Dr. Sleep, and we will do, we'll eventually do a bonus episode on Dr. Sleep. But I was saying that this movie should have been called something else. I don't think The Shining as a title for this movie really works. I think for Dr. Sleep, if you had called that movie The Shining instead, that would make more sense because that movie is all about The Shining. Entirely about The Shining. Yeah, yeah it's all I about think that, that, that gift. comes down to centralization of character. Also, in Dr. Sleep, it is significantly more important to the story that his job, Danny's job at uh, the care facility where he ends up working, is that he comes to visit people whenever they're about to die. Mm -hmm. And that's how they know. So, like... I hate the title. <laughs> way, more, way, way more prominent. Um, and in the book, The Shining, you know, it's so much more significantly focused on mm -hmm. Danny and the development of that ability because the reason that he is able to see all of these ghosts throughout is because of The Shining. And in a way, it sort of seeps into Jack and The Shining takes over like a bad version of The Shining is taking over Jack. And that's why Jack starts to be able to see these ghosts as well. Like there is a potency to the physical manifestations of it. For all transparency, I have not read the book, but in the movie, Jack does not see any of these apparitions or whatever you want to call them until he sees the woman and like interacts, kisses the woman in 237. No, he sees Lloyd first. Oh, right. He does see Lloyd first. Yeah. And then and then there's this idea of like, oh, well, you've always been here. You've always been the caretaker. And yeah. and I think that that's, you know, that's the whole thing with The Shining of like, you know, it kind of fucks with time a bit because it's yeah. it's it's almost like you get the impression that Jack knows Lloyd already. And Jack even says to Wendy at some point, you know, like when I when first came to this hotel, I felt like I, you know, I've been here before and I knew like mm -hmm. everything, like every turn in the hallways and, and all that stuff. And it's it's kind of like playing with us, this idea of like destiny and yeah. it almost like Jack doesn't even have like free will because this is where he's going to end up anyways. Right. That I think is like <laughs> another scary thing is like, you know, he was always meant to be here. No matter how much he doesn't want to hurt Danny, he ends up doing it. I think that there's an interesting thing too then because there is a sort of temptation to The Shining and you mentioned the woman that she's this beautiful creature when Jack first sees her and then turns into, you know, something much more malevolent. And it's supposed to be like the representation that he has been fully tempted by the evil. He's been seduced by it and it's it's taking him over, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a really cool turning point in the film, which is why it's so significant that that is sort of the center that's like the the flip uh, as well. There's this, you know, attempt to reclaim 
Jack and there there are theories that it's meant to be that Jack is like a reincarnation of a previous person that was there but Grady of not of Grady because Grady's somebody else but who but the person that was in that original photo of 1921 like that was supposed to be Jack and this was Jack coming back to it because not only is the Overlook Hotel this place that collects memories it's treated like a living being Mm -hmm. in the novel the actual furnace that keeps it alive is is given these qualities of like breathing and surviving and so that's why it needs someone there full-time is that it needs somebody there that it can constantly sort of draw life out of uh and that's that's what the caretakers have always been to it and is it because there are fewer people there that it happens to like drive the caretakers crazy? Yeah. So it's well, like a concentrated kind of effect. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of a commonality in King's work. He uses hotel rooms a lot as like the, the locations of his books. And it's specifically that these the hotel rooms are like collecting bad people. And Jack is by no means a good person. Right. I think that I was just about to say <laughs> what is what makes him so vulnerable to this is because he has such a latent toxicity to him. His previous alcoholism, the fact that he so clearly hates Wendy and Danny and is resentful of their presence. He is an easy target for an entity that can already push him over the edge that he's been looking over for a long time. There's this implication that it has to do with like Native American spirits or something in in this, because they mentioned at the very beginning that they say, well, you know, this hotel is, was built next to an Indian burial ground. And then there's all this like Native American kind of like garb. And you see like the patterns that are like blankets and stuff. And there's like these relics all around. Right. And then it's like this weird interaction between Lloyd and Jack the first time at the bar. Lloyd says something that's like completely normal. And then Jack just goes, white man's burden. And it's kind of out of left field. It's about the bourbon. Yeah. When he's when he's ordering the bourbon, he calls the bourbon white man's burden. Like alcoholism is like how white men deal with their lives because disaffection from society and their work has driven them to alcohol yeah that's a pretty lame excuse but yeah i mean it's like there's a reason they put that kind of like weirdly contextualized in there mm-hmm. so i wonder if like maybe that it, is that supposed to be like the explanation for why the hotel is how it is i don't necessarily know is this like a pol- uh, poltergeist thing <laughs> I don't that's that's a thing too. I mean there's a lot of a lot of times people are thinking that the ghosts are merely symbolic and that they don't actually ever see them. Uh what they see instead is some sort of horror that has occurred and the ghosts represent what they really saw. Like we talked about this like the like Danny's abuse and how the the teddy bear man at the end is a representation of that abuse how the the woman that seduces Jack is a representation of that same abuse. Yeah. And, and that's, it's what's so great about this movie is that everything, not everything, but a lot of things are like really ambiguous in yeah, and intentional. how, so. yeah. And how, like how the shining works and how the hotel itself works and like why they see the things they see. And that's, 
I think really what makes this movie as iconic as it is, you know, because it's not just like, oh, everything's explained to me. Now I get I get to feel comforted by knowing, you know, how all the rules work together. No, like you're sharing in the horror of Danny and Wendy in this. And and in some situations, Jack. And to bring it back to Jack, like he's... (laughs) I think a lot of this is like about the the allegory of abuse and, you know, mm-hmm. like like you said, and I mean, he calls Wendy a sperm bank to, to Lloyd like yep. it's and I mean, Wendy like just has all the mannerisms of like a battered wife. And there's like every conversation with Jack between Jack and Wendy, like she's just kind of like nervously making comments or it's not. Well, I should say most of her lines have no real substance or meaning to them. Mm-hmm. And upon like first watching this, I was like, wow, this Wendy bitch is like pretty dumb um, and like annoying. And I still find it annoying. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's all because she's like really timidly like walking on eggshells whenever she talks to Jack or like interacts with Jack in any way be- yeah. because of his abusive past and history and like his violent tendencies. And that, that also kind of explains who Tony is mm-hmm. because it, it it is relatively common knowledge that children who have been abused can very easily develop dissociative identity disorder and start to create these other characters as a means of escaping into their own brain mm-hmm. well, from abuse. Also, also kind of like serves as a confidant, you know, like, you know, yeah. Danny can be like, well, I, Tony knows all my issues and Baggage. yeah. And and also the other way around, where maybe Tony is like the manifestation of his his dark, darker, yeah, darker past of abuse and like also kind of. Well, it explains why Tony is so prescient, like every it, like Tony always knows what's going to happen and Danny can't do anything to stop it. It's just like this, this externalization of knowing that you can't do anything about what's going to happen. Well, and, and I think that when Tony like completely takes over, like he does towards the end, that's when Danny is like really heavily dealing with the shining ability. Like he's he's like in shining mode <laughs> the whole time, you know? Yeah. Um, and they show it. I always think back to in Dr. Sleep, how I forget what her name is, but the the like main lady who's like the bad, the bad uh, Rose the Hat. Yes, her. And they have that like really prolonged <laughs> scene with her like floating through the clouds while she's using the shining to like spy on um the the one girl that like she's hunting down. And yeah. spoilers for Doctor Sleep, by the way. <laughs> I mean hardly. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what the movie's about. But that's I, I what I'm I imagine Danny is kind of going through in this because he's seeing Jack kind of like losing it on Wendy. He's seeing Jack kill Dick. He's, he's seeing all the, all this other stuff happening sometimes before it happens. And sometimes while it's happening, being able to also, you know, show Dick Halloran as the sort of mentor figure without him ever really mentoring Danny, but like being the first person to be like, it's okay that you have this gift. Yeah. Speaking about Dick as a character, like he's, one, I think Scatman Crothers is like the best actor in this movie. <laughs> he just does such yeah. a good job. And like he is like from the moment that the Torrances meet him, he is like on. He's all smiles. He's just like 
you know, I, I'm so happy to like meet this kid. And he knows immediately that Danny has the shining and he has this immediate kind of kinship with him. So like they, he, he kind of like sends um, Wendy and Jack off to like go. <laughs> I should rephrase that. <laughs> he, yeah. he sends Jack and Wendy off to go like look at the rest of the hotel. And he's like, I'm going to, you know, get Danny some ice cream here. And that's when he sits him down and he finally stops smiling when he's talking to Danny about the shining and, you know, telling him what he knows about the shining and, you know, how, how to use it and his grandmother had and all that stuff. And so it's just kind of like, he, he carries a lot of weight as a character, I feel. And, yeah. and like how the shining is meant to be used and like how, you know, he knows how dangerous it can be and how dangerous it can be specifically in this place of the hotel. He's, who we sort of look at as the the reliable character mm. in the movie. Well, then there's that shot of him just like sitting on the bed watching TV. Yeah, he's watching. And I think that that is to represent, first of all, I think it's a, com- a comedy moment mm-hmm. to just like slowly have the camera zoom out to show that there's just a picture of a naked woman above his bed because funny. Well, and I, I don't know him. if that's supposed to be humor. I think that's I think it's like a racial thing. I think it's like okay. like a weird like oh it's a thing from 1980 where it's like the the black guy has pictures of naked women in his in his room because you know he's, he's also single yeah I don't necessarily think that it's a racial thing um and I would normally totally agree that like race is an integral part of all of these things however with that I think that it's kind of a comedy moment in the because I see the same thing in like films about college where it'll like have the camera pull away and they'll be in like a guy's dorm room with just like, you know, scantily clad women and posters on the wall because that was a thing in 1980s that people had because how else are you going to demonstrate that you're a straight man? Mm, yeah, and we know Dick Haller in a single. I think what's more important is he's just lying on his back watching the television in that moment. I also think that he's starting to watch what's going on via The Shining mm-hmm. at the hotel. When you can tell that he is, because every time they show... the twitch. Well, there's not only that, but every time they show either Danny or Dick using The Shining to like watch what the other is doing, you can see they, they do this really cool thing um, with the shots of their eyes, and they do this in Doctor Sleep as well, where there's like the reflection of light in their eye. Yeah. And it's, it's literally shining through their eye. It's like this yeah. really subtle, but like cool thing that they, they very consistently stick to. It's great to see them do yeah. that where it's like, Oh wait, but you didn't see it in this one. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's very subtle, but consistent. It's just a great use of a little device like that. Having that as sort of a through line to connect the two uh, novels and, and movies is great. I do think, Two, it sort of represents for them the voyeurism of The Shining, that that ability to mm-hmm. sort of watch and know what's going on and not be able to do anything in that in that sort of, um, uh, you know, premonition kind of way. What's cool about Dr. Sleep is that we then get to see it being acted on in different ways. Like we get to see a different level of scope. To the Shining because all of the characters in Doctor Sleep have a different version of the Shining, mm-hmm. well, which I think is really neat. Well, and then there's the kind of like that counterculture of like the 
the people who like hunt other people with the shining and they call it something different. I don't remember. I think it was like something like, um, fog awakened or, or... no. Cause I'm yeah, a... they're trying to, they're trying to get the fog. Yeah. They like get the fog out of the people. I don't know. They, they call it something different and it's at its most pure when they're kids, which is why it has that whew, super harsh scene. Yeah. With the kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm glad that they like kind of drew attention to how I'm glad they kept it because it continues along the theme of child abuse. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Uh, like it is a direct it is a direct continuation of the thematic material of this movie, which is domestic child abuse. And that one is a larger, almost like traffic child abuse. It's called steam, by the way. Oh, right. Steam. Yeah, because they're like, oh, this there, this one's steamy or something like that. Now, yeah, we know Stanley Kubrick is like a renowned asshole filmmaker and asshole but also like there are things i just don't like about how he makes movies like how his how he so severely treated shelly duvall on set (laughs) by creating an atmosphere that was so hostile she had an actual breakdown over it yeah well he's just getting her into character you know yeah i mean shelly duvall i think that you cannot say that shelly duvall is a bad actress in this movie because she fucking goes through it. Yeah. She she is really put to the limit of her, first of all, acting potential. And also, half of it doesn't seem like acting. It seems like genuine exhaustion and, like, this diminution of her character. Like, they break her down so badly. And we all know, like, the, the story is so clear. It's just like... He dragged this performance out of her practically, and I don't think that she gets enough credit for being a part, for enduring it. It's always, Kubrick was an asshole, but he was a genius for doing this. No. I, I want to say, I want to say, like, Shelley Duvall is, is incredible for being able to survive that kind of treatment. Right. Well, and it's like... And pull from it such a compelling character. And, like... Do you think originally when Stanley Kubrick started sort of like messing with her like that was what his intention was? Like, absolutely not. He was just being a dick, you know? Yeah. And no, he was trying to make her feel bad so that she was more in touch with the character. Really? Do you think that you think that was like ultimately like the plan? Yeah. He's um, gone on record as saying that. Well, just he could be lying. <laughs> he instructed he instructed like he instructed cast members to not talk to her to feel so that she would feel more alienated. Yeah. That's messed up. Like if you're going to hire actors, trust in their acting abilities. Like don't, don't screw with them. If they want to do that to themselves. Sure. Fine. I mean, he's famously known for doing that too. I mean, he broke Scatman Crothers down with the repetition of that long kitchen scene that we talked about where he has to do that speech you know yeah his face probably hurt from smiling for so long 127 <laughs> times they had to do that shot. really oh my god yeah I did not it has that. a guinness book of records isn't it isn't it also true that the kid who played danny didn't know that it was a horror movie yes they he didn't know that it was a horror movie until after the film yeah, because they just told them to, like, do stuff and react in certain ways, right? They're like, hey, yeah. act scared now. Okay, now here... And, and you can kind of, like, if you know that fact, you can kind of mm-hmm. see it. Because, like, there's a lot of times where the kid just, like, has no expression whatsoever. And I think that that yeah. is really cool. 
<laughs> because like that's how you know he's he's kind of like it's almost like showing how he's been consumed by the shining he's you know kind of devoid of personality because you know the the combination of the shining and also his his past abuse has kind of like i don't know sapped him of personality yeah and you know then you get to see like the real world implications of that implications of that in doctor sleep and like you know what mm-hmm. what that the consequences of that mean in his adult life but Going back to Stanley Kubrick, the I mean, the things I don't like about his movies, basically, like sometimes he tries to be too smart and sometimes he tries to be weird for the sake of being weird. Mm-hmm. And I I feel like I'm pretty good at seeing through that shit. And I think a lot of people are pretty good at seeing through that shit. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. oh, wow, what an artist. And it's like, yes, he's a very good artist, I think. Asshole person um, sometimes thinks too much of himself, at least in my opinion. But that being said, the cinematography in this is brilliant. I mean, also, to be fair, like, you and I, we're not saying anything new. Everything about this movie has been said. No, yeah. It's, so it's just like... We're, we're not offering any insight here. We're just here to talk about it. <laughs> we're just here to talk about the movie and why we liked it and why it has earned its place in this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And this episode's actually sponsored by Airbnb. <laughs> Airbnb's gonna come for our necks. They're gonna be like, stop it. Or, or. <laughs> <laughs>